Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. As usual, this is a Tuesday episode, so with us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how's it going? Good morning. We're here on a hot and steamy Monday morning on the Lower East Side at PNT Network. And um, it looks it looks pretty dismal right yeah, outside there's a our lot. I, I would say <laughs> August 8th on the Lower East Side, not that I wanted to turn anyone from coming to the bookstore and buying stuff and spending money, but like, is sort of a rough thing. And in general, while I'm not eager for the summer to be over because there's stuff I'm looking forward to, I'm eager for September to come and foot traffic and kind of this neighborhood to transform again. I will say this for anyone who is coming down to PNT Netware though in August, the, the AC in here is first. Excellent. Rate. The Wi Fi is great. The, ex, the, the uh, AC is great. The coffee is there's good. There's cold so drinks. Cold drinks. Cold drinks. So e- even if you hate books, still might be worth coming by. You hate books. <laughs> you might want to come to a bookstore if you hate books. Okay, Bradley was on uh, a vacation last sort week, of, but but he yeah. was he wasn't he he was on vacation sort of as some sometimes he does in 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 body, but not really. Well, mind. the problem was this: I took a, a genuine vacation earlier this summer. You know, we went to Africa, and well, I don't know, went to Africa, and, and you know, I didn't not work, but I I did mainly focus on vacation as opposed to work, um, and we were gone for a long time, and then. Our friend turned 50, and she rented this house in Calabria in Italy, and... You had to go. Well, you know, I wanted to... Harper really wanted to go. Our families are really close, and there's a third family also that we're close with. And I I wanted to celebrate with her, but I just sort of took the position of, I'll do that, but I'm basically just working from there. And so I just... You know, mornings were easy because it was too early here, and then I would kind of work in the afternoon, early evening, and then, you know... That was it, but um, but yeah, it was it was fine. How's the Wi-Fi in Italy? It was okay. Uh, in their house, we stayed in a hotel because I don't like staying in people's houses. But uh, their house was pretty solid. The hotel was reasonably um, decent. Um, but you know, I would say I am not built for sustained leisure, and I don't like being off that much. In fact, I don't think we're going to talk about it. There was a story I saw on the Washington Post this morning about the four-day work week and how, from a climate standpoint, it could be advantageous. Mm -hmm. And my first reaction was like, I don't want to work less. You know, like, I like thinking about work. Yeah, I try to take at least one weekend day where I try not to really do anything. But like, I like what I do, man. I'm not looking for less of it. So I don't want more vacation. I don't want more weekends. You know? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's not really talking about you, right? I mean, one of the things that's interesting when they talk about the economy or they talk about, you know, are people going back to the office or whatever, There's, they're talking about things on this kind of industrial scale, right? I mean, most people who have office jobs have, like, cubicle jobs, and they're counting the minutes before they can go home or yeah. can stop working. And that's obviously... Right, and we'll talk, when, when you, Bob, and I record on Friday for, for next week, we'll, we'll get into that, actually. Yes. Um, but, um, but, yeah, but the the... You know, the way that, that the sort of content for this podcast works is usually I'll have some sort of idea or thought, text Hugo, and we'll start talking about it, or vice versa. Um, and the way that this at this week started was we were watching a show called The Old Man, which you don't like. I only um, watched the one episode. And, you know, now, including you, enough people have been like, I'm, gonna ex- I'm actually going to explain something I don't like about it. But go ahead. I, so I thought it was really good. But, but right. here's the point. Nothing to do with the show. Right. It's on. Like I said. FX made it, but it's on Hulu. So there were no commercials, but I guess it was made as if there would be, or maybe it did run on FX as well. I'm not sure. I think it did. And so you have these moments where they kind of fade to black, to fade to commercial, but then they don't do it, right? And that's kind of what what led me to start thinking like, oh, this is normally where a TV ad would go. It's not going here. 
what does that mean? And it kind of led to all of these different kind of thoughts around advertising and capitalism and technology and kind of where it's all going to go. And so that's kind of how this first topic got started. I, it, it's funny. Did it make you think that like commercial breaks were kind of a good thing, right? Because in, you know, in a baseball game, I mean, obviously it stops every inning and then there's a normal place for a commercial, but it's always like, oh, good. Like I can, you know, run, get something to eat or, you and know. Baseball doesn't require, you know, a, a ton of focus. So I can put the game, I, I often prefer to listen than to watch because I can be doing something and still listen to right. the game at the same time. Okay, let's talk about advertising. So yeah. you, you notice these sort of ghost moments, essentially, yeah. in, the, in the thing where there would have been an advertisement, but there wasn't. Right, so I'm just going to lay out, and, and you can jump in with questions and points, but kind of my, my question slash thesis, right? Okay. So we know that our economy is based on capitalism. Yes, that's indisputable, <laughs> right? Okay. We know that capitalism is about selling goods and services to people, also indisputable. We know that advertising is the main method by which goods and services are marketed to people, correct? Correct, yeah. So we're agreeing on all of that, right? So since World War II, it's been pretty simple in that the best form of advertising by far has been television, right? Um, other mediums have been kind of stronger or weaker depending on where they are in society, but at the end of the day, nothing has had the, the potency uh, of effective TV advertising. Um, but as streaming comes along, and all of a sudden the old man cuts to what would be a commercial break, but there's not one, um, the opportunity for TV advertising is declining significantly. And so it's like, okay, we're gonna have less opportunities for advertising, but an economy still basically entirely based upon advertising goods and services. So what happens, right? So that, that was kind of the, the, the setup here. Um, for what I was wondering about. Well, let, let's yeah. de let's define advertising because you know Google and Facebook are two of the most valuable companies on the earth, both based on advertising. But are, do you consider what they do not advertising? No, I, or I, I, I do, and we'll get into this. But okay. I just think there's a serious distinction right now between mm -hmm. TV advertising and digital advertising. Even like the digital pop-ups and all that kind of stuff, um, I think its its efficacy is significantly lower, and so. While that's the way that everything's evolving into, my argument is there is this one form of advertising that has driven the economy for you know 75-ish years um, that is now starting to go out of style, not because the ads aren't effective, but because the technology is evolving so much. Um, and what does that mean? Okay, I mean, I I, I I guess I question a little bit the efficacy factor. I mean, obviously, if if Facebooks and Googles advertising models didn't work, those companies wouldn't be worth billions and billions of dollars. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a combination of doesn't work compared to doesn't, doesn't work as effectively as a TV ad, but it might, it's a hell of a lot cheaper, right, combined to people. If, if the viewers are leaving ABC, NBC, and CBS, which they are, and they're cutting the cord on cable entirely, which they are, the advertisers got to go somewhere, right? right? So like, just because Facebook and, and Google are successful, doesn't mean that digital advertising is equal to TV advertising in terms of efficacy. Right. I mean, I guess the big advantage, so you were in Italy. A friend of mine um, operates a, a hotel in, in Italy, in, in, in Tuscany. One of his biggest expenses in the way he publicizes his business is buying search terms on, on um on Google, and they, yeah. you know, so that's a form of advertising. He could never afford to advertise on television. Right, so look, it's not that, but there have always been cheaper forms of advertising, right? So you could advertise on the radio, or in print, or like- The yellow pages. The, the billboards, the yellow pages, subway ads. So it's not like there always haven't been 
multiple types of advertising, some which cost more and some which cost less. There's just been one medium Driver. that has just been so effective right. mm -hmm. that I think by comparison, and look, SEO is obviously important. We have it too. I've had like an idiot this morning that launched a new Touch Strategies website today. And I just typed into the Google browser, touch strategies, and then clicked it. I'm like, I just paid those fucking assholes to click on my own website. <laughs> uh, it was like a cent or whatever, but you know. Did you think it was a full cent? Maybe less. But you know, the, the point is, um, yeah, SEO is, is totally pervasive. But, but let's sort of play this out, right? Okay. So let's say that TV advertising becomes somewhat anachronistic over the past decade or so, right? It's just... No one's watching network television, regular broadcast television. It doesn't exist outside of news and sports. News and sports, as we're seeing, especially sports, is already being gobbled up by Amazon, uh, Apple, all, some of the other streaming platforms. Um, but digital is just not as effective, right? So, and I know there are sort of pop-up ads and hybrid ads and everything else, but let's just say that nothing has the efficacy of television advertising, but television, the opportunity for television advertising has pretty much faded what happens, right? Do we just have shittier advertising? And if so, is that bad or does everything just kind of relative and the companies that have slightly less shittier digital advertising will do better than the companies that have shitty digital advertising? So that's that's one scenario, right? Which is the, the nature of advertising itself changes and digital replaces TV and we just all of a sudden are in a, a kind of a winter of effective uh, communications. Two would be the opposite and say TV advertising will prevail because it is more effective than the other forms of it. Um, Netflix spent 20 years resisting advertising and they just turned to it because they need the revenue and they need to provide consumers with a lower cost option. Um, HBO Max has a tiering plan now with advertising. Hulu does, although I will say the Hulu advertising thing, I've, I've, I don't know if you've experienced it, it's kind of bullshit, which is like you pay them for no ads and there's still ads. And I remember looking like, what, what just happened? I just paid you the extra six I noticed bucks. that during the bear, too. I, 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 I pay the premium and there are, So their argument is, at least for shows that Hulu is showing but didn't create, they still have to show you the ads, which means there's some small percentage of shows that you're bypassing the ads for. Wait, so, but you didn't see ads on the bear. Uh, I mean, on, on old, the old man. I no, I don't was. recall seeing ads on the bear either. I did see ads in the bear. So, so maybe that's what I paid for that you didn't. But like when I was, if we were watching, I don't know, Top Chef or whatever it is, you still have two minutes of like San Pellegrino and Bounty. Do you always pay the extra if that's an option, like an extra $2 a month or whatever for us? Yeah, to the, save, I mean, you ads. know, I make choices constantly based on efficiency. So yes. Um, but overall, you're seeing these platforms realize, hey, I need the revenue. And what's interesting is not only are subscriptions to cable channels, cable operators declining and the cord keeps getting cut, Platforms like Netflix are also losing subscribers. So then the question becomes, it's not even like, well, everyone's going to be either here or here, and we'll just hit them wherever they are. I think it's becoming so diffuse that you're in a world right now where there's just, you know, everyone's going to their own places. And even if you were to say TV advertising was effective, we want to keep it. The question is, how can you do it and target people in a way that would still make sense? So, but, but the second scenario would be the streaming platforms all eventually adapt um, advertising just in the same way that the networks and the cable channels did. That seems just for sure, right? Don't you think? I mean, the, you if, know, Apple's building a huge like ad business, like a big yeah, ad if, trading if, if platform. If there is consumer tolerance for it, right? Like the one challenge is everyone now has watched at least some streaming with no ads, right? 
Everyone knows no ads are better than ads. Now, some people are willing to pay the extra six bucks, some people are not. Okay, some people have the money, some don't. Okay, but overall, once, you, once the genie's out of the bottle, it's really hard to put it back in, right? So when, when TV advertising was just a fact of life, you know, maybe you hit mute, maybe you went to the bathroom, whatever it was, but, but you didn't sort of question its existence, right? Once you have seen that there's a better way to do it where you can just not have to watch ads at all, you might choose to, to save a little bit of money, but you're not going to be happy about it. Well, don't you think one thing that's happening, right, is the line between what's advertising and what's not is harder to tell, right? So the good thing about watching regular television was the ad comes on, you're like, oh, they're trying to sell me deodorant or beer or whatever it is. Now it's like it's pervasive advertising. It's everywhere. And it's a little less clear, like, what is advertising and what's not, you know? Like, so you mean like product placements and shows? Well, there's definitely product placement and shows, but I think it's even more than that, right? It's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's, in, it's interesting. I know you don't use social media very much um, or ever, but, um, but, you know, on Instagram or Twitter, there's just way more, you know, it used to be you followed people and 99% or 100% of what you, the content you got was the people you'd follow or whatever they posted. Yeah. And now it's like, I don't know what the percentage is because I don't spend that much time on it. But on Instagram, it's just tons of other shit all the time. And all of it is paid, right? So it's, it's people, you know, if, if, if... And does that make you less likely to use Instagram? For sure. But, I, but, it, but it doesn't seem to make my daughters less likely to use it. So, I, 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 so I'm used to an old model where I like that demarcation between here's, here's what you want yep. and then here's – and sometimes the advertising is decent, right? Like part of the, part of the thing in, of us growing up, you know, I mean there's ads we can remember like from, you know, does Mikey like it, like Life Serial, things, things that like got imprinted on our brains from watching television. And the key, right, is that if advertising is entertaining, if it has power – then it will find its way into... It'll find, it'll find its, its medium. But what happens if just the most effective medium was regular TV advertising where you accepted it, where you're watching a big screen as opposed mm -hmm. to a tiny little couple-inch phone? Right. And, yeah, sometimes you're going to the bathroom and hitting mute, but you end up watching more ads than you realize or right. want to, right? Um, I think it's possible that it gets replaced in the sense of the volume is the same and it's making up for it. But I think even if you have the same quantity, I just don't know that you have the same quality. And I think ultimately, if the quality of the advertising is less and therefore its ability to sell you products is less, um, that's gonna have to change how kind and, of And so where do you works. see that going then? What's your, what's your end So there's, there's a few ways, right? One would be um, they improve the existing technology to a point where it, it Video advertising, digital advertising has the same hold over people in the way that TV advertising does, right? One. Two, they develop some entirely new form of advertising that we can't even think of right now um, that replaces the options today, and that becomes more effective. Um, three is, you know, the actual standards and means by which the entertainment industry is supported could change itself, right? So um, people could say, I'm going to pay for what I want, right? You know, in, in the cable world, you have this problem of bundling where they would say, okay, if you want ESPN, you have to have these other 83 channels as well that you're never going to watch and pay for it, right? And the cable operators made a lot of money that way because they knew you really wanted HBO or ESPN, whatever it was, so they stuck you with everything else. This is a totally de decentralized, unbundled world. And so maybe it's, okay, how do I make an unbundled world uh, of advertising work, and maybe you come up with some sort of algorithm that says, okay, Hugo is likely to use HBO Max, Instagram, and YouTube in these specific ways, and here's how we're gonna target him, and here's how we're gonna target him with ads that he's not gonna completely ignore. So, so maybe that's an answer, or 
and this is probably totally pie in the sky, Pollyanna, but what if, if the ads become less of a tool in selling people things, you have to actually have better products and goods <laughs> and services, and you're selling stuff more based on the merits. Like, if you think about it already, one really good thing of the internet is it's very good at, like, consumer reviews, right? Like, you can now very easily say, what did people think of this movie, this restaurant, this product, you know, whatever it was, um, and the crowdsourcing kind of notion of that is very, very effective. So already, I think, um, producers of goods and services are held more accountable because people can so easily judge and rate and review them, um, perhaps as the sort of means of advertising change as well, it puts that much more pressure on them, which means maybe as consumers, it, we win because it gives us you know, so you're saying stuff. maybe? Do you feel like that's is that your is is that where you're putting your chip down or not? Or I th I think look. So I was thinking about this like as I always do from a, a political standpoint as well, right? And, I, and I've I've written this before, which is in theory, the savior of American politics is Reed Hastings, right? Just picking him as, as a streaming <laughs> person, right? Okay. In that. Um, the vast majority of spending on a political, on a high-level political campaign is TV advertising. It is wildly inefficient, right? So, like, I was with my brother-in-law yesterday, and he was, you know, he's up in November for re-election. We were talking about kind of where he's placing ads, and he said, you know, his, his team was pressuring him to take broadcast ads, but his district as a whole is... About three percent of the media market, right? Because twenty million people between Princeton and you should mention a little bit more about him. Just oh, so Josh, I'm sorry, okay. my brother is Josh Gottheimer, congressman from New Jersey. Um, and is, is it suburban New York, New Jersey? Yeah, yeah, okay. northern New Jersey, Bergen County. Okay, um, and I think Essex or something like that, uh, or Union. And then so he was resistant because his point was, I'm going to spend all of this money to at best reach three percent of the people watching these shows, and of that. Only a small percentage of them are actually voting, and of those, only a small percentage of them are undecided or swing voters or whatever it is. So he's paying to reach 20 million people when he's really trying to capture 20,000, right? And so as a result, I said to him, what will be the point where you don't do TV ads for campaigns anymore? And he said, I keep asking my consultants that question right now. They keep telling me we have to do that. Now they're saying that because A, TV advertising is still effective, especially with older voters who are more likely to still watch some version of cable or broadcast TV. And B, the consultants who do this for a living have no interest in seeing a change, right? This is how they make their money, right? So they, so they get a little, they clip a, a little. They take as much as 15% on every buy. So as a result, um, they're incentivized to kind of maintain the status quo. But again, you can only keep the genie in the bottle for so long or stick your finger on the dam or what, <laughs> whatever it is. And so eventually, if we get to a point where the efficacy of broadcast advertising is just too low to merit the cost and everything shifts to digital, yes, digital can ultimately cost more money and they can raise the prices on it, but it's a lot cheaper, right? Which means you may have this world where all of a sudden you actually need less money in politics simply because of the nature of the change of the way that we consume advertising from broadcast and cable television to streaming. And but having the power to raise the money means they'll figure out a way to spend it, right? I mean, the, the fact that if, if, if you can, I mean, I guess it'd be interesting to see if a, a super underfunded candidate is able to beat. Well, I think, look, so look, AOC and Crowley, right? right you know, Crowley right. was the head of the Queens Democratic Party, you know, multi-decade incumbent. 
incredibly wealthy. She had a lot less money, but she understood. Podcasts. Yeah, <laughs> podcast was her sort of number one insight, and that was really smart. Um, but overall, with less money, she was able to say, in this very low turnout primary, here are the people who are, I think, likely to vote that could be for me, and I don't need to spend money reaching them on ESPN. Right, um, and so I think she's already kind of figured that out, and so yeah, I mean, there's two things that could happen. One is, have you seen? I'm sorry, have you seen the AOC thing work since then? Is that sure? Uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's. Well, one, she didn't invent it; the Tea Party did. And right. by the way, they they invented it for digital, right? The the thing that ultimately created the Tea Party was Facebook, right? Before that, Democrats always had an advantage when it came to grassroots and get out the vote because they had labor unions and the Republicans did not. What the Tea Party figured out, which was brilliant of them, was that they could use Facebook to organize their side just as well as the Democrats were using third-party organizations like unions to do it. The Tea Party did that. It was very effective. They launched all of these people into Congress. We still see a lot of this, you know, a, a Josh Hawley or a Ted Cruz or whatever asshole. Marjorie you know, Green. Yeah, we're dealing with today is still an outgrowth of the Tea Party. And then in 2018, I guess it was, or 2016, AOC does the same thing. And then we see this sort of whole wave of people on the left who are elected. So, yeah, I, I think they do. So, so you have, look, one of two things happens. Either one is candidates who are less funded now have a better chance of winning. That's not a bad thing at all. Or just the amount of money you need for a campaign declines a little bit, right? So every politician will tell you the thing they hate most is calling and dialing for dollars all day and going to fundraisers and begging people for money and pretending to care about mobile voting or childhood hunger or all the shit that I talk to them about when they're just looking for my check, right? Um, if you said, okay, guys, you used to need to run a house race at its peak $7 million, but now because of this change in mediums, you need $4 million, and they'd be pretty happy about that. Now, those who are capable of still raising extra money would, would do so. But overall, I think it would actually arguably uh, give politicians a little more time back to at least try to do something valuable. Have you run this past your brother-in-law? Yeah. I mean, he, he kind of agreed. We talked about it yesterday. Um, I think he agreed with the whole thesis of it, and I think he would be eager to see this happen because, one, he spends so much of his time raising money. He's also so much better at it. I think he has the most money in the house of anyone outside of leadership. He was like, I don't know, 11 million bucks or some crazy number like that. So he either could take his foot off the gas a little bit and use it to do other stuff, or he could keep his foot on the gas, which is knowing Josh what he would do, and then be able to dwarf the other person. Like How tough to an win. opponent does he have for re-election? Um, given that I don't know the person's name, probably not that tough. But, <laughs> you know, it's a district that he defeated a six-term Republican incumbent. And I think it's overall going to be a really good Republican year. We saw Phil Murphy, who's the governor of New Jersey, barely get reelected um, last year. And so, yeah, was Josh going to win? Yes. But will the margin be less than he wants it to be? Probably also so. Okay. Um, we are going to switch the firewall signature hard pivot into uh, the Kansas referendum. Yeah. Um, well, it's kind of we're sticking with politics. We're sticking with politics. Yeah. But... Um, we're just going to go through some basic stuff. We've touched on this uh, last week, um, but uh, we're going to return to it because it's obviously the story in politics right now. Um, why don't you just Why don't you just give me your basic thoughts? What did the referendum tell us? Yeah, I mean, look, what it says is there is a world of people, especially women from the Democratic Party, Independents, and even the Republican Party, who very much believe that women should have the right to control their own bodies and very much see Dobbs as evidence of women being treated in this country and seen as second-class citizens. And that resulted in 
massive turnout in Kansas where first glance you would be like, oh, it's Kansas, of course they're going to go wipe out abortion and ban it. Second glance was going to be like, oh, because of the anger around Dobbs, this might be close to them winning in a landslide. It was 60-40, right? So the good news is there are voters out there who clearly care about this issue, who probably normally don't turn out, but they can be mobilized, um, and that could make a meaningful difference. And what do you think about for November? What's it's a good question, right? Because on one hand, you could say this is a great sign for the Democrats because people will turn out in the handful of swing races in the House and, and in sort of the half a dozen or so Senate races that are really contested, um, and that will get Democrats an advantage. Um, and that might be true. On the other hand, I think gas prices are just as important, if not more so. And so, look, they have declined a little bit in the economy. The jobs report for July was really good, and maybe things are getting better. But if we're back in September, October, and gas prices are five forty a gallon or whatever it is on average, um, I think that's going to cause more pain uh, politically for Democrats than the upside of kind of Dobbs-inspired turnout. How do you think it'll impact abortion access overall? You know, it really only probably matters at least for now, in the states where the referendum process is necessary. So in addition to Kansas, uh, Montana, Kentucky, Michigan, of either red states or swing states, um, would also in some form require some sort of referendum. So look, Kansas is a really red state. So if, if you can beat it in Kansas, could you beat it in Montana and Kentucky as well? Yes. Could you beat Michigan? A absolutely. Um, but at the same time, it's just a handful, right? So the vast, vast majority are still decided by state legislatures. And until the turnout in Republican state legislative primaries changes meaningfully, their incentive to pass the toughest laws against abortion they can don't change at all. So outside of Kansas, Montana, Kentucky, maybe Michigan, you're still going to basically see what we saw happen in Indiana, which is just basically a total meter. A Total near ban of abortion. So you think they'll 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 favor the short term benefit of? I mean, I know your answer is going to be to this, but of winning a primary over the long term damage to the party yeah. that comes from doing something that's that's yeah for, unpopular. For, for, for a few reasons. One is, and this can be one to give them credit, which is. If you believe that abortion is murder, I don't, you don't, but if you do, then arguably the answer is, this is why we run for office, let's get the win, right? Let's do the thing that we are here to do. Um, look, I think that's why, you know, you could argue that Dobbs shouldn't have been handed down until after the midterms, right? But if you're Amy Coney Barrett, and your entire purpose in life is purely to outlaw abortion, you're not waiting, right? Because you have your opportunity, and you're going to take it. Um, so... They're always going to make kind of the short-term decision based on the people who actually vote and, and what they want next. But I, I think you're right in that there is real long-term risk for at least the Republican Party, if not for individual Republicans. And it's, it's that they're going to overreach, right? So we've already seen the 10-year-old girl who, who got raped and couldn't get an abortion. We saw the woman in another state who had like a miscarriage and it took her three weeks to have the, the, the baby, the fetus removed because of, of you know abortion laws. Um, as the overly zealous Republican officials in these different states try to impress the base, um, they will make stupid mistakes. And some of the stupid mistakes will be really, really hurting individual women who, A, are in an unusual situation, but B, big picture, maybe more important, their stories are relatable. They're understandable. We can remember them, right? You know, And so it goes from being a statistic to an actual anecdote. Um, and if there are enough anecdotes, that's what starts to shape kind of public opinion. And so I could easily see a world where 
you know, the vast majority of red states do enact really tough abortion bans, but then in an effort to prove how virtuous they are, they kind of over-enforce, over-prosecute, and it starts to backfire. What are the risks for the Democrats here? So, so you've outlined the Republicans, but the, the Democrats is a big win. Um, there's lots of self-congratulatory headlines, coverage in the yeah, press. Yeah, I mean, the risk is, is they will be exposed as ineffective, right? So, like, and, you know, as you know, we're, we're doing May Day, and so we're kind of in this, in this issue right now. May Day, for new listeners, is a education nonprofit website that a bunch of us uh, created, we just helped out, um, that provides women with information as to how they can receive um, abortion medication and counseling and treatment via telemedicine um, in any state, including red states where abortion is banned. Um, but look, I mean, one of the reasons that I'm involved with May Day is because we're actually doing something, right? We are saying the FDA has said that, that these drugs are federally legal and therefore states can't ban them. Um, you can put them in the U.S. mail. It's almost impossible to trace or track, especially if you use mail forwarding. Um, you know, if, if doctors in blue states want to get on the on, on video with a, a woman in a red state and tell them how to go about it, it's very, very hard to catch that. And so to me, that's effective. But I will say for every May Day out there, it seems to mainly just be a lot of process and hand-wringing and typical nonprofit and democratic behavior, which is everyone's upset, everyone's strategizing, everyone's looking for consensus, everyone's this, everyone's that, and no one's fucking doing anything, right? So, so the risk for the Republicans is they really look like assholes and monsters, which I think they will reveal themselves to be, at least the ones who <laughs> are fervent about this issue. The risk for Democrats is they just look whiny and incompetent, which generally is the case, right? So I think the risk politically is greater for the Republicans in this case because I think the, the public already knows that the Democrats are whiny and incompetent. That's why Congress has like a 7% approval rating or something like that. Um, but yeah, they, they can misplay it too. You mentioned the jobs report, um, blowout number way ahead of expectations. Yeah. Um, there's been the climate bill. There's the reconciliation bill. You know, the, the White House is starting to stack up some victories here. Um, does it actually feel like positive momentum? Or yeah, so there, there's, there's a political question here and there's a substantive question, and I have a little anecdote that I want to throw in that um, was my own learning from this. So, yes, uh, it is better to win bills than to lose bills, but Bill Backbatter has been out there for a year and change now. Um, it never got done. It, it is a third of what they originally proposed in terms of price, but nonetheless, it's still hundreds of $700 billion in spending, right? Still a lot of fucking money. Um, and for generally two things that I think, you know, are, are pretty popular and pretty right. One is, you know, various steps to mitigate climate change, and the other is to make prescription drugs more affordable, both for Medicare and for, for individuals as all, well, and also be able to subsidize uh, people who just can't even afford the most basic health care insurance. So are those good things that voters want? Absolutely. Um, the problem that people, it's just like the plague of people who are too smart for their own good, is they're so on the inside, like, oh, this prescription drug thing passed, now Biden is safe. And it's like, you know, people have to feel that. They have to see their actual drug prices go down. They have to experience it just because... The headlines are not going to do it. No. And, like, you know, the reason why gas price is so effective is you feel it every single time you go to the tank, whereas just because you pass some bill... Or do you find yourself committee. looking at gas prices every time you drive past the thing just to yeah, see Yeah, I do, which is funny because I drive an electric car, but I still, um, I still do check because I'm just curious because of the political implications of it. And also just because it's so shitty for the economy that if everyone's money is going to 
pay for gas and they don't have enough money for food or for, or for consumer goods or whatever else. So it, it is really important. Um, but overall, so yes, it's a win for Biden. It's a win for Schumer. It's a win for Pelosi. But do I think the people that are walking past us on Orchard Street right now particularly know or will it change the way that their likelihood to vote or to give money? No, I, I don't think so. Um, but, but here's the other thing that I kind of learned from this, and I'm maybe speaking out of school a little bit, but fuck it, it's my podcast, um, which is... Well, so you're in, you're in good company. We're late in the podcast. So these are your, really your people who are listening. Yeah, right. right. This is the hardcore group. Um, so I think as everyone who listens to this knows, I've been trying very, very hard to generate more federal funding for universal school meals. Uh, we have been working on legislation in lots of different states out of Tuss Philanthropies um, to create programs like school meals. California, Vermont, and Maine have gotten done, Nevada, um, but still the vast majority of states have not. And while you would still need to authorize on a state level, if there was $10 billion newly uh, available for it, the uptake would be significant. So our analysis showed that if they put $10 billion more into school meals federally, 9 million more children would eat for the next eight years. So, so if you to take round numbers, there's roughly 50 million kids in the U.S. public school system. Roughly 30 million of those currently qualify for free or discounted school breakfast and lunch. Um, of the remaining 20 million, there's a chunk, a, a third, half, who come from families that don't need it, right? That are wealthy suburban families or upper middle class, and, and they can afford it. But there's another chunk that, you know, the eligibility limits aren't high enough to capture them, but they're still really struggling, right? So we had the chance to feed, let's call it roughly 10 million kids for the next eight years. And so I, I have been for the last year on and off running this campaign ineffectively um, to try to get that included with the theory of you have 50 sem senators on the Democratic side, everyone has equal power to actually just insist on something. Mainstream and cinema were the only ones who've ever had the balls to do it, but, but at least in theory. And so I gave a lot of money to Mansion and Cinema, both raised money, gave money, gave to PACs that are controlled that they control, to Sabinow, to Gillibrand, to Booker, to all of the people who are Sanders, all of the people who are supposed to matter on this issue, um, and spent some time talking to Cinema and her team about it, kind of the, the the day before they announced the final deal. And I thought, you know, we at least were in the mix, maybe. You know, especially if they were going to get rid of, if, if they were going to protect carried interest, it seemed like, well, at least you can balance it with something that's good for poor people. And so carried interest is a loophole in tax law that lets people like me take the gains that I make in my venture capital deals and pay capital gains tax instead of regular income tax. In order to protect rich assholes like me, we just sacrificed 9 million kids who we could have fed every single day who would then be healthier, better at school, ultimately end up being far less of a societal cost and burden. And we chose not to do that simply because Kirsten Cinema probably cut whatever deal she cut to go get a job at a hedge fund or a bank or something um, when she's done running for office. So the next day, because I'm asked by politicians for money constantly, I get an email from like a, it's the super PAC supporting Mandela Barnes, who is the candidate for Senate from Wisconsin on the Democratic side. And they said, oh, you know, we really want your help, blah, blah, blah. I said, you know what? I care about one thing. I care about feeding hungry children. Um, and I just spent probably between direct donations, pack donations, lobbying, whatever else, somewhere between half a million and a million bucks, just pushing for this one thing, money in this one bill for school meals. Everyone I talked to promised me that they would never let the bill go through. 
without this extra money. By the way, a pittance of money compared to the amount that we're total, talking about total here. And even if they gave us $5 billion instead of $10 billion, I would have been happy with it. And at the end of the day, no one fucking stood up. Kirsten, uh, Kirsten Sinema did nothing. Joe Manchin did nothing. Cory Booker did nothing. After all literally people, saying to you they would. Yes. So all of these people did nothing. And so the response I wrote back to Mandela Barnes's PAC, whatever, it's like, I don't care who wins the Senate. Because the Democrats have power right now, and they still can't take the fucking basic step of feeding kids who are going hungry. If they can't do that, and even after me putting all of this attention and money on top of it, they still can't bother to do it, what do I care who's in charge? Um, and so what I've learned is I do not have the ability to meaningfully impact federal legislation in any way. Um, we can certainly do it on the state and local level. We do it all day between consulting business, the fund, hunger, voting, all the other stuff we do, but we don't do it effectively on a federal level. Um, you, you can win and build coalitions and pass bills, but in terms of the approach that lets me pass you know, hunger bills in, in individual states, doesn't work on the federal level. Is it just a question of scale? Like it's just... It's, it's a question of scale. It's a question of things just are more likely to get done in state and local government. There's just more of a culture of that um, in the federal government. You know, there are so many people lobbying every member and so many things that, like, yes, did Cinema have to text me back because I've given enough money that she needed to? Yes. But did 20 other people, some of whom were probably trying to protect their carried interests and some of whom had causes that were, I would say, not quite as worthy as school meals, but, but pretty close? Um, yeah, she had to write them back, too. And so as a result, so I think there's a much bigger base of people that they're trying to satisfy and therefore they can't. There's much more of a culture of things not getting done. And, you know, there's still so much more focus on Washington than there is on Albany or Sacramento or Springfield or wherever it is that the ability to take a little bit of political risk, reach across the aisle, form some consensus and all of that is that much less because everything is immediately reported and tweeted. And the minute anyone deviates from the, the base position on anything, there's massive protests outside of their home and office, you know, 24 hours later. And so uh, I am out of the um, business of giving money to candidates for federal office. So if you are a candidate for federal office or if you run a PAC or you're a fundraiser and you're listening to this, do not call me. Do not email me. Do not text me. Um, go get school meals funded and then call me back. But until then, don't fucking bother me. And you know what? Because the Republicans are going to win the House in November, and I had this conversation with Cinema. I said, this is our chance. They're, they're not going to support this. And if you don't do it now, it's going to be years at best. Until we can you told to this to her directly? Huh? And, and what did she say? Just all bullshit. Pablum, right. nothing. So the point is, I am out of the um, business of supporting federal candidates for office. Now, your final point uh, on this is actually something that I think we might want to return to. We can talk about it for a second now, but I think it might be actually an entire episode of a podcast, um, which is the focus in our political system, um, certainly in the media, uh, and the way groups are organized and do their campaigns is around elections. And what you're thinking about is that that's wrong, that the elections are not a reliable way to, um, to affect the change you want, that there should be more focus on individual legislation. Yeah, so look, you know, every time something really bad happens, so like when the Supreme Court ruled that you can carry concealed weapons in places like New York City when uh, you know, the right to abortion is struck down, things like that, all these people who were sort of 
not that politically engaged, but successful, have money, kind of care enough. They, I then get this inundation of like, what can we do? And I'm, we're going to start a pact to elect these people. We're going to give money to this organization and that. And maybe that's good, right? And there are some issues that are just so binary, like abortion, that you just want Democrats in office instead of Republicans. Although, again, we had Democrats in office and they just fucked over 9 million hungry kids. So I'm not really sure what value it is to have them there in the first place. But... It seems to me, so okay, there are people who say it worked hard to elect, and let's just use Kirsten Sinema as an example here. And by the way, like, I'm beating up on her because she was the one that actually was nice enough to engage with me. Um, so it's probably sort of, you know, it's damned if you do, damned if you don't here. But, um, but nonetheless, there are people who said, okay, we need to elect this, this person. She is really smart. She has this incredible backstory. It's a good narrative. She's moderate. She'll be right for the Democratic and independent voters of Arizona, all of this stuff, right? So you put all this effort into electing her, and then you think, oh, I've elected someone. The things I care about are now going to happen. And that's not true at all. All it means is you put this needy, insecure, self-loathing person in office where they now make every decision based on how do I stay in office not based on um, what you cared about when you helped elect them in the first place. And so it, trying to achieve policy goals by focusing mainly on elections, I think it's just a really, really indirect, kind of ineffective way to do things. And if you instead said, and this is especially true at the state and local level far more than federal, um, these are the issues I care about, I'm going to fund campaigns to pass state legislation on X, municipal legislation on Y, administrative rulemaking on Z, your odds of success are a lot higher and you're bypassing a lot of the risk because instead of putting people into office who you hope will do the right thing, you're specifically running a campaign to box them in to force them to do the right thing. And so I just, I think that there is like an alignment problem in American politics generally. Look, I think that's a pretty, pretty good, pretty good subject to return to sure. I mean, as, as we do with many things. Um, so uh, we're at the end of the podcast. We um, you, you have a dessert. We start. With, we, is it dessert? We end with something light. Yeah, unless I'm hoping we have a minute to talk about the Mets as well. But then it'll be kind of a double dessert, like a like a cheese plate. Do you think everybody at the end is like, oh my god, please Mets, please Mets, yes, really, yes, please talk about so. the Mets? Yeah. Um, okay, but first, before we get to the Mets, we're going to talk about Jane's addiction. Well, here's the thing, and maybe this is just me, right? But but I, I guess the question I had, and I think I texted you um, from the flight is did Jane's addiction either intentionally or unintentionally create one of the greatest forms of guerrilla marketing ever? And so the song Stop by Jane's Addiction, which is one of their top, I don't know, three or four songs, whatever yeah, it is, it's a good song. starts with, and oh, you know what, hold on, I, I have it. I'm, I'm going to play Are you going to play it? I'm going to play it. Oh, my God, us. we're going to get in trouble with our rights attorney. You think so? Even no. though we're talking about like, I, I think you can news? play. I think you can play like five seconds of it. There isn't. Right, so I've heard that song hundreds and hundreds of times, as how I would say anyone who's around 50 years old, right? Um, and... <laughs> Every time, in any scenario I'm in where I hear senoras y senoras, right? And this was on the plane back from Rome, and it actually was Italian, but close enough. I think of Jane's Addiction, right? So they managed so to you take... you jump on Spotify and listen to it a no, hundred times in a row? but I think of them, right? So, like, they managed to take 
two of the most basic words in, in the dictionary and co-op them where all of a sudden for a generation of people, when they hear those two words, which can be very frequently out in society, um, now you think of this fucking band. And the question is three questions. One, is that true or is just me being me and therefore being weird? Two. Well, it's true that it's happening. Is it true that I, they I, had I, that vision? No, no, I don't do, think do so. Other people think of it like that as oh. well. I mean, here's the thing. I don't. But, yeah. but um, and I, I may not be as big a Jane's Addiction fan. I mean, I do like them, but I don't, I don't have that kind of emotional attachment to that song. But it, it works for you. Yeah, but I, I, let's, let's presume I'm not the only one. No, I'm sure you're not the only okay, one. So, so then the question is, did that, you know, did, did Perry Farrell seems like a reasonably smart guy. Like, did he do this on purpose because he understood that this was like an absolute genius way to do subliminal advertising? Or do you think it was just they thought it was a cool way to start off a song and then by accident discover this way to sort of constantly remind people of themselves? There's no way it was intentional. You think it might have been? No. I don't, I, I don't think it's, there's any chance of intentional. I'm curious if Other what I just said now? or just if if the band members even ever picked up on it and said, you know what, we did this thing not on purpose, but people now think about us all the time because we managed to co-opt this phrase. Right. Uh, maybe. Uh, I, I don't think that they, they did it on purpose, but then the question is, could you, going forward, do it on purpose? Right? Could you say, okay, I mean, it's got to be, Stop's a really good song. It's got to be a good song for the whole thing to work. But like, okay, if I've got... Problem number one, right? Yeah, a good, song. a good song, a good work of art in whatever form it takes... Could I try that people are going to enjoy? Could I try to co-op some phrase that's actually fairly common in whatever language, and then use that to subliminally get people to think about me and my work? Um, you know, when they hear that phrase, I think I see a new life. division of Tusk Strategies, yeah, like exactly. a like a sort of artist relations. Yeah, because yeah, there's there so much so so big budgets there, so much money to yeah. <laughs> you know. Sure, it's a great use of our uh, our resources and time. All right, ask me one question about the Mets. Two questions about um, the Mets, and then we'll go. One question about the Mets. Um, okay, I'm a Yankees fan. Why should I be more excited about the Mets than the Yankees? Um, one, I think the Mets actually might be a better team. So right now, the Mets and the Yankees have the exact same uh, record, seventy and thirty nine. Incredible. Same After the season, the Yankees were right. just well, so dominant. Way ahead, and the difference is. The Yankees, who just lost, what they lost, like five in a row or something five like that? Five in a row, yeah. um, Got swept by the Cardinals. And I noticed this when I was there at, in the Mets-Yankees game at City Field the other week, which is um, the Yankees did so well in the first half of the season because a lot of people played beyond their abilities. Not Aaron Judge. I would say Aaron Judge is as good as we're seeing, right? Maybe this will be his best year, but but he's right. he's excellent. Nothing fluky about right? his season. But a lot of other guys, especially guys in the rotation, especially guys in the bullpen, were outperforming their normal record and abilities. Certainly, and the, Clay Holmes. No, yeah, and the question of Cortez, whoever. And the question became, you know, the question became, when are they going to regress to the mean? Everything always eventually regresses to the mean. So there were two possibilities. Possibility one is um, not till after the season. Sometimes that happens, and a team that you would never expect to win a title wins because everyone has a career year at the same time, and they keep it together, and it works. Or at some point during the season, around the mid midway mark or so for the Yankees players start to regress to the mean, and then all of a sudden um, you're not as good as your record said you were um, simply because you are outperforming. Whereas the Mets, um, this is who they are, right? It's, you know, Max Scherzer is not having a career year. Jacob DeGrom is not having a career year. I mean, this is just how these guys pitch. And so, you know, the Braves lost four to five to the Mets, and if you think about it, if you're them, you know, Carlos Carrasco, who's a you know multiple all-star, who has got 12 wins this year, 
this year basically shuts you down pretty much in game one. They, they knocked Taiwan Walker out of the game immediately in game two, so the Braves won that one. But then the rest of it, you know, you had David Peterson, who's just sort of a solid lefty starter. Matt, and so now all of a sudden the Mets are up two games to one with two to play in the series. And you know who the next two Mets pitchers are? Max Scherzer and Jacob DeGrom. DeGrom didn't give up a base runner until the end of the sixth inning. Scherzer picks, pitched seven innings with a shutout ball. And so I think the Mets are genuinely as good as what we're seeing right now, and therefore that actually makes them a better team. One final question. Do the Padres have the ugliest uniforms in the history of baseball? I think that they do it perversely with pride. So who? Oh, we went to the Mets-Padres game a couple of weeks ago, and so I think other than Lyle and I have been to, to the ballpark in San Diego, but everyone else was like, oh, wow, those are really ugly colors and uniforms. And it's like, you know what? They're not stupid. People have been saying they're the ugliest uniforms for the last 40 years. And what do you mean they're not stupid? Maybe they are stupid. They just <laughs> traded for Juan Soto. They're not that stupid. That's just being rich, um, right? What, they bought the most expensive thing? No, no, no. They, they drafted all these good players who had trade value, and, and they okay. used them to get Soto. So the Padres uniform is clearly extremely ugly. My view is they know that, and for some reason they think it's to their advantage. Bradley, till next week. All right. See you. Bye.